Today, a special episode of Return to Reason, where knowledge and wisdom intersect. My guest today is Danielle Smith. She's the former leader of the Wild Rose Party, the official opposition in the Alberta legislature. She holds degrees in economics and English. <clears throat> She's a president of the Alberta Enterprise Group and currently hosting a podcast and releasing weekly newsletters, guest appearances, passionate about local business, entrepreneurs, small government, libertarian style of individual freedom. The Danielle Smith Show is a weekly on the news forum. Danielle, welcome. My pleasure, thanks for the invitation. A lot has gone on in the last two years, and then in the last two months, uh, a lot has gone on. How would you explain the, the Freedom Convoy or the other things that have taken place with the Conservative Party, etc.? What are you thinking when you look at this? You know, it's funny. I think part of what has happened in the conservative movement in Canada is that we've not really been very well represented represented by our conservative leaders. We are so heavily influenced by the United States. And we've been watching over the last number of two years as the different red state leaders have taken a very different approach. I mean, I think Christy Nome in South Dakota has probably been the, the one who has been the, the most freedom oriented. I don't think they ever had any lockdown measures or any any restrictions. But Ron DeSantis in Florida came to the conclusion very, very quickly that he had to take a different approach. Uh, so as of September of 2020, they, they moved more towards focus protection. So uh, I think a lot of Canadian conservatives were watching these developments with great interest, expecting that somewhere there would be a conservative leader who would follow that same track. And it hasn't happened. We have, I think now seven premiers who are conservative. I mean, think it through Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, PEI, New Brunswick, and even Quebec leader Francois Legault is seen to be conservative. And they've walked 100% in lockstep with the most extreme measures that we've seen around the world. It's almost like we're being inspired by Australia and New Zealand for some reason. And I, I think that's part of what came to the breaking point is that Canadians really do take that peace, order, good government philosophy very seriously about how we are governed. But I think what our politicians forgot is good government is required to have peace and order. When you get bad government, when you get government that isn't reflective of what the populace wants, when you start asking for too much, there's a breaking point. And I think we probably could have seen it resolved if we had some political leadership that was willing to break ranks with the narrative and the status quo, but they weren't, so the people had to do it themselves. That's sort of how I, I look at what occurred over, over the past month is that people just got pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed too far and they broke. Yeah, I think we live in a world where, uh, you know, maybe decades ago, you know, if you could control the mainstream media, you, you could pretty much control the country. But today, with all the different social medias and other ways to communicate, people are going to get a chance to see around the world, and they're going to be checking out the healthcare orders in other countries. They're going to be watching Denmark, uh, DeSantis in Florida, etc. And so they have, we have a real ability to draw our own conclusions. Censorship is becoming a really hot topic among mm -hmm. citizens. Talking about censorship a little bit. Well, I 
I observed that because I was in the mainstream media at the time. And I can, I can attest to the fact that something quite dramatic changed mm -hmm. when the uh, public emergency was announced in, in March of, of 2020. And I, I think that there's a couple of things that I would put to it. One is that because our, our broadcast media, radio and television is regulated at the federal level, I think there's been a convention that we are in um, conventional media, radio, television, we are supposed to be the, the go-to source for important government information. So when an emergency is declared, I think that there's been a practice where radio and television look at themselves as being the faithful carrier of the government message. And that's fine if an emergency lasts a week or two or three, if it's a flood or it's a fire or some other major emergency, you can't continue that way for two years. It's impossible for the media to do the job it's supposed to do, being the fourth estate, overseeing government institutions if there's an expectation that they're going to be a propaganda arm for two years. So I think that's been one of the failures is that the, the mainstream media should have shifted at some point in the last two years to being far more critical. The other really insidious role has been the role of uh, big tech companies in guiding media coverage. And I, I, I think in some ways, because newsrooms have been hollowed out as the tech giants have gotten more and more advertising, have more and more money. I think a lot of what has happened is if something trends on Twitter, that becomes what the mainstream news story is. So the, the, the mainstream media is really taking its guide from the big tech giants. And so what did we see? We saw Jack Dorsey of Twitter and Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook and Sundar Pichai of Alphabet, the parent company of Google and YouTube, all say we are not going to allow anything to be published that contradicts Anthony Fauci as the top doctor in guiding the CDC response. So think of how that happens. You already have a Canadian media that believes their job is to is to faithfully report during an emergency to do to do that work. And then on top of that, they're taking their guide from the big tech companies, none of whom are trained journalists. And if something gets trashed or deleted or deplatformed on Twitter, Facebook or YouTube, there's no chance the mainstream media is going to cover it. So we've had two layers, I think, of suppression that has occurred. And it's been very unfortunate. It's part of the reason why the alternative media, as you've mentioned, you can't can't suppress everything everywhere in the social media environment. It's why the, the alternative media has been has been able to find a niche to to to, to advertise and broadcast the voices that that the, uh, the the legacy media have refused to. Yeah, that's true. As you as you look forward to the mainstream media, how hard of a hit do you think they have taken? Because I see people commenting about them all the time on social media. Just citizens, just they're so fed up uh, with looking at uh, you know people who are on the ground and then mainstream media, and they're shocked. I mean, all of us are even shocked to know that we're kind of shocked. Wow, look at the difference in the reporting. And so some are saying that mainstream media has really lost its power for the future. Do you think that's true? They have to find a different strategy to find their way back. When I got involved in media, I entered in the mainstream. I was an editorial writer and columnist for the Calgary Herald. And my publisher at the time, Dan Gaynor, his mantra was that our job in the media, even though I was a commentator, so I, I was on the opinion side of the newspaper. Mm -hmm. I, I think some people forget that there really are two sides of, of reporting, that you've got the straight up news stories, but then you also have the commentators. But the, the notion was always you had to be fair 
you had to be accurate and you had to be balanced. And I don't think that those three guiding principles are in evidence anywhere in the mainstream media these days. So I think if they go back to foundational principles and they realize that there isn't just one expert and there isn't just one worldview, that you, you can take an issue and if you've got five different perspectives on it, you should be sharing all five different perspectives. And then you can have your commentator say, okay, well, I've heard from these five different voices and this is the one that has the ring of truth about it. This is the one that has credibility. This is the one that doesn't. The, the mainstream media, in my view, should be a gathering point for all of those various views in society so that we have a common platform to talk to each other. And then it, the media should be playing that role of saying what they think is credible and what they think is not. They're not playing that role right now. And so the danger that we have is now we're going to end up in a world of confirmation bias where the people are going to only go to those new sources they know agree with them. And then they'll never have their viewpoints challenged with another perspective. That's not good for those on the conservative side of the spectrum. It's not good for those on the progressive side of the spectrum. It'll lead to more, more polarization and more division. So I'm really hopeful that the legacy media uh, goes back to those foundational principles because we need that. We need that kind of news reporting. Yeah, we sure do. There, there was a day when we used to love watching programs with two different opinions, brilliant people shaking hands across the table, cup of coffee in one hand, you'd put your feet up and listen to two great minds take a topic on. And it was brilliant. And man, you will not see that today at all. And, and that's awful. And it shouldn't be that way, really. I mean, you can't just have three different versions of, 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 of liberal or progressive commentary and, and try to pretend that that somehow represents the, the full spectrum. So that's the other part, too, when you ask about some of the motivation behind the, the Freedom Convoy. I mean, I, I read very broadly and I have a, a social media channel and a newsletter where people will send me all kinds of, of videos. And some of them are a bit kooky, fair enough. But some of them, yeah. you look at them and say, why is this doctor not allowed to talk about his expertise in epidemiology or how the immune system works or or therapeutics that have that he's found to have some success. Why is that being deplatformed? And when you start raising that doubt, the, the problem is it then causes us to question all of our institutions. If we can't get this information from the mainstream media, if it's being suppressed by our politicians, if it's being suppressed by the, 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 the doctors who are in the position of chief medical officers, then what it does is it starts eroding confidence across the board. And it, that'll take a long time to build back. Yeah, that sure will. When you look at how uh, Canada has handled um, these, these last two years, um, talk to me a little bit what you look at the landscape of, of premiers across the nation, how they're handling it, and then how our prime minister is handling it. Any, any thoughts about any heroes rising up or any big concerns you've got when you see how they're handling things? Well, you have to know that my hero is Governor Ron DeSantis. And I, what I like so much about him is he locked down along with everybody else last April when nobody knew anything about what this virus was going to do. And so, you know, fair enough that that happens. Uh, you have to you, you have to uh, give people some leeway that they, they might make a harsh decision in the absence of information. They see everybody else is doing it. And it seemed like the right thing to do at the time. But what I appreciated about DeSantis is that when time came for the next variant and the next surge 
in September, he said, no, I'm not going to do that. And instead, he held two press conferences, um, and I, I watched both of them, where he brought in academics, the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, uh, Jade Bhattacharya and Sunetra Gupta, uh, Scott Atlas and Martin Kulldorff. And he, he conducted a press conference where he introduced and asked them questions so that he could help the public understand why he was pivoting and going in a different direction. And then he just started going in that direction and took on the federal government when they wanted or saber rattling about uh, denying uh, travel to, to Florida or taking on the municipal and local levels of governments when they wanted to maintain those mandates. And, and so to me, that is kind of what I expected of a conservative leader in Canada. So if it's just so you know what I think is perfect, <laughs> then uh, by comparison, it's been such a grave, grave grave disappointment in Canada. The, 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 the fact, it almost seems like when I, when I, I said this um, deliberately, that it almost seems like we took our guide, guidebook from Australia and New Zealand, yeah. because when I was on radio, I was watching what was happening in Australia and New Zealand. Now, keep in mind, they're both islands. So they both got it into, their, into the head of the leadership that they could somehow manage to lock down their borders and have zero cases. And so I think that that was put out there as some kind of gold standard, that you want to be able to have zero cases of COVID. And I think even Australia and New Zealand realizes that's now impossible. Well, it's triply impossible for a nation like Canada, which has multi-millions of people and dollars going across the border with the United States every single day. The, the idea that we could have followed the same tactics was ludicrous. And when I, as I watched New Zealand and Australia get more and more authoritarian, I was, I was dismayed to see that yeah. that was the case here. The, uh, the premier I expected to be the most liberty loving was Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. And yet it's in this province that they jailed three pastors. They locked up and expropriated a church for a time. Um, they arrested a restaurateur. Uh, he continued on the same. He, he said he wasn't going to have a vaccination passport. He called it something different and brought it in, a restriction exemption um, uh, program, but it was the same thing. It was a vax passport. He allowed his bureaucracy to fire people who were unvaccinated. There's still people today who are losing their jobs because they're unvaccinated. He put pressure on businesses to bring through mandatory vaccination, said he would shield them with liability protection. That bill incidentally has never come through. Uh, and so, so when you look at that record, that is, and also most tragically, he, um, I saw the, the stats from Israel which were a couple of months ahead of, of us in their vaccination. And I saw that the efficacy of the vaccines were wearing off already in July. We didn't have a vaccine passport come until September. And yet the premier was using the same language, trying to call it a uh, pandemic of the unvaccinated, turning neighbors against each other, turning families against each other. That is going to take a lot of healing to overcome. So um, when I look at that as being sort of the best case scenario, let me look at the positive side. He did at least go in and out of restrictions. So he went from extreme lockdown to extreme openness, but then just didn't have the will to continue on with it in the same way that uh, Governor Ron DeSantis did. And so I think he's he's created pockets of liberty, where by comparison to other provinces, he's the best. And we did have an option of rapid testing every three days. So even those who did not want to get uh, un get vaccinated could go and, and pay their 40 bucks, get a test and still have access to society. So there, there were a few things that he did from a nuanced point of view that allows for Alberta to have bragging rights as the most free, 
but not even close to what we saw with the in Florida. You'd think a premier would be able to do what DeSantis did. Like, by the way, that video, uh, I think, has been taken down, and you, uh, we can't find it, uh, of him with his uh, talking about it. I could be wrong, but it just... You mean the, with, it, with, the, with the Great Barrington Declaration? The people, uh, he had, he had a kind of his boardroom. Remember, yep. it was him talking. He was, he was asking sure them each do. questions. I remember sure seeing do. that. And uh, maybe I just can't find it, but a couple of us said, okay, they, it looks like they have uh, censored that. Um, when you take a look at the premiers, and it's, it's hard to look across the political parties and see any difference, but where are they getting the pressure from? Like the public is looking at this, and we talk a lot to the public, you know, because of what we do as a television network, and, and uh, they're just kind of surprised at, at these premiers. Why wouldn't they do what DeSantos does? For example, go outside of... Uh, Canada, find the most brilliant minds, which we're talking about this in Oxford and Stanford, and just go after the data and use that to say, here's why. Exactly like DeSantos did. Where's the pressure? Why did they all line up so quickly and just follow the same? Any, any thoughts on that? A couple. One of the things I remember Premier Doug Ford saying is, oh my gosh, anyone who goes against their chief medical officer of health is going to be dead politically. And so I think that there was a, a great amount of governing by public opinion polls. And I don't look at that as leadership. I, no. Any given issue that I see, you will have one third of the people hardcore on one side, one third of the people hardcore on the other side. And then you've got a third in the middle that can be persuaded with reasonable arguments. That's where I think the leadership failed, is that they would, the, the system that I saw taking place was the tone would be set by the daily press conference with Dr. Teresa Tam and Justin Trudeau. And then it would scale down to each provincial level and they would repeat some of the same fear-mongering messages from their chief medical officer and their premier. And then it would go out into the public and the opposition would scream, you're not doing enough. And the unions would scream, you're not doing enough. And the Twitterati would go going, you're not doing enough. And then a poll would come out. Do you think that there needs to be harsher lockdowns? And it would be 70, 80% saying yes. And so rinse, repeat, you ended up with this same pattern happening over and over and over again with the leadership going to the media saying using messages of fear and then testing saying gee are people afraid well of course they are and we didn't get any any alternative messaging so why not i'd like for us to to discover that when this when all is said and done i suspect that one aspect is that we have a huge amount, more than we ever realized, huge amount of control and influence that comes from Dr. Teresa Tam's office as the Chief Medical Officer of Canada. Because everywhere across the country, there were these little COVID advisory committees that popped up all over the place. And I interviewed some people from them. And I thought, where did you come from? Where do you get your authority? Why do you have so much power to influence the direction of the provincial government here? So I think that there is some kind of mechanism through the the federal health agency that puts pressure on the uh, the, the the other uh, more junior government level, um, but in equivalent categories. The other thing is, there's something um, I think quite dysfunctional about the medical profession. Yeah. in how they address these issues. I mean, the media, as you said, we're accustomed to doing things the true scientific method way. You take a thesis, you have an antithesis, you pound them together to find out where the agreement and disagreement is, and then you come up with a new hypothesis. That is sort of the, the scientific method, and it is the way that we do things in the media. In the medical profession, and this may go all the way back to Galileo, 
is that you have a conventional view and anybody who pops their head up and challenges it has to be uh, taken away into exile. And that to me is why you never let doctors be in charge of a, of a political response like this. They don't have the discipline within their own profession to allow for cordial disagreement. They, don't, they, they look at it as an affront, a professional affront to challenge one another. And that has been the true catastrophe is that we've allowed for one person's viewpoint to be an edict. And the sad part is the public's not dumb. They see that that one person changes their mind every three months. Don't wear masks. So now you must wear masks. And now it's, well, now you need N95 masks. <laughs> um, or, you know, we have to do social distancing. Well, now we don't really have to do social distancing. Or now we do. Like we keep going back and forth. It's safe for you to buy, to go into Walmart and Costco and buy goods. But heaven forbid you go and sit at a restaurant. So, so these are the things that people have looked at and said they just simply don't make sense. And it's part of the reason is because you're not allowed to actually debate and challenge whether these things have any medical credibility behind them. So um, that would be the other part. And then the last part is I don't know what levers the federal government pulled on the provinces. Everybody has been facing a financial crunch. I know that Premier Jason Kenney mentioned a couple of times hmm. that when we went to float our bonds to raise money so that we could pay our salaries here, the market wasn't interested. And so the federal government came in with Bank of Canada and bailed us out. So was there some kind of financial leverage that Yes, we don't buy your bonds if you don't do what we say. Was there some kind of transfer leverage? We now get $11 billion, which I think is about um, somewhere around 15% of our budget from the federal government in federal transfers. They take it from us first, but then they give it back. Was there some kind of leverage put there too? Sorry, we're not going to transfer you money if you don't do things our way. Was there some pressure put on Alberta that if we went outside the norm, that they would shut down both of our airports? They shut down the Edmonton International Airport. Would they have shut down Calgary's International Airport too? Would they have put up border blockades and not allowed people to come in and out of our province? I don't know. Uh, I'm just saying that there's obviously the fact that there has been no differentiation between any of the provinces that suggests to me that there's got to have been some leverage that were put on them behind the scenes. And I don't know what that is, but I think we need to find out. You know, even the word science has lost any real power because, you know, all sides, whatever, wherever those sides are, are have, have used the word science. And I agree with you that we need to get back to actually true science, not science that um, has a financial uh, benefit. And, uh, and so a lot of people have been digging into that. And uh, I think that's very true. And moving forward, um, do, what do you think is going to take place? Do you think they're going to be able to continue lockdowns and things? Because uh, John Hopkins put out a study you probably saw a little while ago that uh, with all the lockdowns and all the mandates that they did, they felt that it impacted maybe 0.2%. Um, so are people waking up to that? What, what do you think is going to happen in, in our near future? Where are we going? Well, somebody is circulating a, a graphic that shows the the, the the pathway of this virus through two different states, Florida and California, which had diametrically opposing viewpoints. And guess yeah. what? The graph is exactly the same with maybe a time lag of a few weeks. Viruses are going to do what viruses do. I mean, I would hope that we would begin to understand a little bit more about virology because it is interesting. They do um, surge in waves and then they dissipate for some reason. Is it climate reasons? Is it because they run out of people to infect? Is it because they morph into something less dangerous and so it's less detectable? I think we need to have a crash course in how viruses work because I think 
we expected them, and maybe it's because um, the big tech giants have been doing so much to lead the discussion around this, people maybe thought that uh, human viruses work like computer viruses, that they would just keep going and going and going and going until they infected everybody, until you came up with an effective vaccine to stop it. But that's not quite how viruses work. There is an an immune response that happens. Some people get really, really sick and some people don't get sick at all. So I think we need to, to understand that. I think we also felt like it worked like bacteria. And viruses have a very different profile to to bacteria. I mean, I think if you put salmonella on a counter and everybody touches it, they're probably going to get sick. Whereas again, viruses are strange. They they don't infect everybody in exactly the same way. So I think we need to do a lot of work around that. And if we can get some honest discussion about that, then then maybe we won't put up with it again. But here's the danger that we have. We're not in the clear yet in Canada, because um, although the Freedom Convoy woke up a lot of provincial premiers and they all announced plans to reduce restrictions. Alberta today is virtually restriction-free. They started by ending the VAX passport. They, um, the mask mandate ended as of March the 1st. All of the restrictions on businesses have ended. I think the only ones that remain are masks in long-term care centers, which probably makes some sense. And I think there's some testing requirements in, the, in there as well. But all of the architecture for the vaccine passport remains Um, The premier said that he's going to maintain that because, oh, some people will need their QR code if they want to travel. Well, what does that say? It says that the federal uh, government still intends to make it a requirement to leave our country that you must be vaccinated. Otherwise, you cannot leave Canada. You can't drive across the border. You can't take a ferry. You can't take a train. You can't take a plane. We are, I've been told we're one of three countries that do not allow its citizens to freely come and go, the other two being North Korea and Cuba. So that's not a position that I want us to stay in. But the fact that we've maintained the architecture for this uh, to enable federal travel makes me very worried that the federal government is going to go in a direction and they have such enormous influence over our provinces. The other thing that the federal government was quite clear that they were going to do is use their power over federally regulated industries to force mandates. So we watched it happen with passenger travel. The next phase of it was this cross-border mandate on the, on the truckers. The, the phase after that was going to be not allowing truckers to go cross provincial borders. I have several members of my organization that are in the trucking industry, and that's the next step. And beyond that, the federal government also mandates ports. So all the longshoremen, they're going to have to be vaccinated if they want to keep working. All the railway workers, they're going to have to be vaccinated. Anyone who's in radio and television broadcasting, that's a federally regulated industry. Banking, does that mean that banking customers as well as employees are going to have to be vaccinated to use the services. I mean, I don't put it past the federal government to keep on pressing ahead because they're in a position now where they have not relented one bit. The the Freedom Convoy began because truckers said, this is ridiculous that we're not allowed to go cross-border. Why? Why do you think the federal government is so... I mean, I'm listening to you just list it out and you kind of go, this is crazy. It's, uh, our yes. freedoms are just would, would just disappear completely. So and that's what a, is it? Well, I think that um, perhaps we've been walking in lockstep with Israel. I've been watching Israel because they're the other ones that are so heavily dominated by the Pfizer vaccine, and we can't get the Pfizer contract, so we have no idea what the provisions of the Pfizer contract are. Where it has been released elsewhere, my understanding is no one wants to reveal the price that we're paying. 
uh, I think there's also a requirement that once you've signed up for the contracted number of doses, you can't say no, you have to pay for them, whether you use them or not. And you can't uh, put them into the, the COVAX general system to be able to, to, re, to re-grant them. So now go and have a look at how many doses per person each country have lined up. Canada's lined up nine doses. How are you going to get people to pay uh, to, to receive nine doses unless you maintain the fear? Um, that, and that was always, I think, the, the, uh, the next step. If you look at what happened in Israel. In Israel, they turned off your Vax passport after they redefined it as three doses. And then they turned it off again when they redefined it as four doses. So I think that was the direction we were going. Yeah. The, uh, I read a report you know, coming out of um, the States saying that people who are getting booster shots are hugely down but it's not being reported. And I've heard others that I'm interviewing or talking with say that the fastest growing group in Canada are the unvaxxed, meaning if you don't take the next booster, then you go back to being an unvaxxed person as far as rights, etc. And uh, so people are definitely waking up. Uh, more and more things are taking place. If we're being censored, they'll start more social media companies. Um, you know, it makes you wonder how long it'll take for people who are hardcore afraid because fear, uh, maybe that's something to talk about, is that have you ever seen so much fear blasting from our mainstream media, from our government spokesmen, from health officers? It is so irresponsible. That's probably the, the worst aspect of everything that we've seen is the, the fear, the turning neighbor against neighbor, using yeah. fear. The kids who, even though we did have a measure of freedom last summer, I wonder how many, and now, I wonder how many kids now safely behind that security blanket of wearing a mask are going to keep on wearing it. What, what have we done to our kids? Uh, I, I look back on my K-12 to education days. There's not a single year that the government could have wiped out that wouldn't have fundamentally changed the person I am today. Um, mm -hmm. Would I have wanted a year where I couldn't play basketball? Would I have wanted a year where I couldn't participate in drama class? Would I have wanted a year where I couldn't volunteer at a school for, for special needs kids? Is it is it appropriate that government has wiped out two years of these kids' life? Not by a long shot. You can't get those years back at that age. And I think that that's the most callous thing that our governments did is they, they sacrifice kids when they could have been very honest that anyone under the age of 18 is an extraordinarily low risk of having a severe outcome. Uh, anyone between 20 and 70, you know, depends on your own personal circumstances and health conditions. And if you're over age 70, yeah, you probably should get the the, the, the shot and, and continue to get boosters, just like you would with influenza. We, we could have had a common rational discussion about risk instead of making young children feel like if they didn't get vaccinated or didn't wear a mask or didn't isolate or didn't wash their hands that they were going to kill grandma and grandpa. I mean, yeah. that's the kind of messaging yeah. that these kids heard. Exactly. I don't know what that's going to do to them in the long term. There's going to, it's going to, as I said, we're going to need some real healing and part of it will probably involve a normalizing uh, some kind of therapy session for each of these kids, just to get a measure how resilient they are, get a measure of how many of them have ongoing problems and, and, and be very serious about addressing some of those mental health issues. Yeah. The other issue we'll have to address is the, the bullying. When you see uh, adults bullying each other, kids mm -hmm. take their guidance from that. There was a yeah. really great experiment called blue eyes, brown eyes, 
from the 1960s, where a teacher showed how quickly you could turn lovely third graders into, uh, into, into nasty, nasty people who would bully each other on the school ground just by saying, oh no, blue eyes, they're the ones that are the best today and brown eyes are the bad people and then switching it the next day. Uh, the, the bullying that happens with children, that stays with you a lifetime. Social ostracism is harder to overcome than physical injury. I just interviewed somebody on that recently. And so I remember when I was on the air, I had an 80-year-old guy, I did a bullying segment. I had an 80-year-old guy call in and he was in tears as he was talking about how he had been bullied in junior high school. So it stays with people for a lifetime. What in the yes. world did we do yeah. in indoctrinating adults to, to, yeah, to, to indoctrinate their kids to treat each other this way? So that's my... I think we should be absolutely ashamed of our political leadership for that reason and ashamed of the uh, media leadership and not challenging and calling it out and be very aware that we, that we've got to, we've got to take some serious effort to address those mental health issues so that we don't end up with a crisis in the future of greater number of deaths of despair and suicide and drug and alcohol addiction. We, uh, we, we still don't really have a full handle on what we've no. done to people. I think that we one of the things that has to happen, I feel, and I like your thought on that, is that there ha the history, you know, when history looks back, it gauges and examines and digs up documents and, and measures things. And this has to be looked at. We have to look at the response of the government. What was the outcome? The premiers, what was the outcome? Who was saying what? Where was the pressure from? Should we have followed the money? You know, we can't just move forward and not turn around and do a diagnostic on the last two years. And that's got to go into the public forum. I don't know if they're going to do documentaries or, you know what I mean? We just have to. There's just too many uh, unanswered questions. There's too many things that have been censored. And there's too much division. And I don't think it's going to work just to say, let's just leave it all behind us and move forward. I think you know. There's, I think it's there's a multiplicity of things we should be doing, but one of them has to be we would like to know truth, the whole truth, about these things. Don't you think? I think you're right, and I think it can be done. And I mean, I think it can be done in a kind way if yes. we can. I mean, I, I think a, a lot of us are are very angry about how we've been treated, and we've seen our friends and, and family and loved ones treated. But if we're going to move past where we are to better decision making in the future, a lot of the guys who made decisions today might be future decision makers as well, because we do have politicians who end up getting reelected term after term after term. And I think that there needs to be some recognition that the, it was a confusing time, that there were. Uh, competing messages. I still think that the onus is on an elected official to seek out the information from yes. a variety of sources. That That's where I hold them accountable right. because I was able to do it. You were able to do it. Mm -hmm. I, I was just a radio host. Now I'm just a business advocate. I can, I can, I can walk and chew gum. I can, I can listen to what the official view and I can also listen to the alternative media and that's their job. That's their job is to, is to get the input. And I think that's where the failure happens. So if we recognize, boy, that really screwed up, let's see how we can repair it. I think every politician should be engaging in town halls this summer. We've got to get back to that. We've got yes. to, they have to walk in a room and give a five minute speech and say, blast me, 
tell me what I need to know. Because a lot of politicians fail because they walk in a room, they eat up all the airtime, and then they leave without talking to anyone. And that is not going to heal. People have to be heard. They have to be prepared. And the politicians have to be prepared to take a throttling over it. Because it's the only way that they can really understand how their decisions impacted the people that, that they were governing. So if we can have that sort of healing tour in every province, with at every level of government, then then I think that we have a chance of at least putting all the issues on the table. The second step, though, how we prevent this from happening again, we have to look at the public emergencies, our uh, public health emergency act, because it should never be declared on a national level, never declared on a provincial level. If you look at how it's worded, and I have, it was really drafted when we had things like typhoid and cholera and smallpox. It was never intended for it to be applied in all regions without any kind of discernment. It's supposed to be a measure that you give to your public health officials to deal with a local health emergency. And so I think that that it needs to be redrafted so that it cannot be used so broadly. And then secondly, I think we there's another emergency response that we have that is a completely different department. We see the emergency response happen at provincial and federal levels when we have a an ice storm or a forest fire or major flooding event. And it's a different trained group of people. I know because I went through the high river floods and I also was on the air when we had the Fort McMurray fires. What I find interesting about the command process that they go through is they don't allow their people to get exhausted in, in high river. They they rotated the top guy out every seven or, or 10 days because you need that perspective. You get worn out. Think about it. We've got our chief medical officers that have been in this heightened state of stress for two years. Like yeah. you can't make good decisions if you have been bombarded with, with uh, cortisol, cortisol for, for, for two years. You're just not going to be thinking properly. So they've had no reprieve. The other part that I would say of an emergency response is that there's sort of three very uh, uh, very delineated phases to it. There's sort of the immediate, oh my gosh, we've got an emergency. We, we, we have to stabilize things. Once you've got the stability, then it's okay. Now we have to do the repair and the management and the recovery. And then the third part is recovery. So you actually, we haven't really moved to recovery yet. We've been in this heightened state as if every single day was this heightened state of panic even though we've learned more about the virus over the last two years. So I don't think that the public emergency, public health act has the flexibility and the tools that it needs in the same way that it is if we'd hand this, handed this over to the other department. That, that's the, been the position of Lieutenant Colonel David Redman, who I've interviewed many, many times. You've probably seen him as well. He tried desperately to get through politicians because he managed our emergency response in Alberta in 2004. He tried desperately to get through and say, there's another way to do this. Just hand it over to a different group of people who've been trained in the charter of rights and freedoms, who have military experience and know where the lines are, who know when something is a real acute danger and when you can start relaxing and moving back to civilian control. They are all trained in that kind of thinking. Doctors just aren't. And that's the reason why I think we've got to, we, we, should, we should never allow doctors to do this to us again. I love, I totally agree. I love what he said. It was all in place. You would have had experts from every segment of society sitting in a room uh, and they would have looked after how crucial it is for the economy to keep money flowing, how crucial it is to look after the, uh, the other issues of medicine, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, not to let, in his words, a health officer run a province. Completely. Can I just, on that point, because you've sure. probably heard the same response that, that he's given to me before. So he says, for instance, if you had 
a, a proper emergency command center, you would have all of your major pieces of infrastructure at the table. You'd make sure that you had your gas plant guys and your electricity guys and the guys who were on the food supply chain. Not so that you could say, oh, Cargill has an outbreak. Let's shut the entire place down, which is what the doctors want to do. It's yeah. okay. Cargill is one place we want to keep open. Let's make sure that we've got provisions in place so that we don't get an infection there so that we can keep the food supply chain going. It's a completely different way of looking at it. And that's why that's why I think that we've got to get back to real emergency planning, proper emergency response when these kinds of things occur. I agree. The Another thing that I've noticed in talking with people is this distrust of stats, mm -hmm. that they would say things like the hospitals are full or the, all the beds are full, we have to be careful. And then you'd talk with doctors and nurses and they don't know what to say, but they're going, um, nope. Like, and we know, what, what do you mean by that? And so there was this bandying of words that while we were just talking about this, we were just talking about that, but it continued to bring this fear. Uh, that you know everything they were doing was right because look how bad things are, and that's such a you know even Redmond was commenting on that. That's the first thing he was taught in leadership, was stay calm, walk, do not create fear, do not create panic because it is impossible to creatively solve a problem when you are in fear, when you are in panic. You've got to be calm, you've got to be collected, and then you do your best thinking. And uh, so stats. Do you trust a lot of stats? You see. You know, you have to, stats are only meaningful when you can compare them to something. So um, you see all of these dramatic charts that go up and down on the COVID virus. Well, how does that compare to previous respiratory right. viruses that we've had? The other thing that, so there's a few things that we're going to have to do to give some credibility back to the statistics. Um, Zach Bush, I don't know if you if you follow him, he 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 um, gave a presentation that really sticks with me, and I would like to see Canadian data on the same front. And what he found is that going back every year, and the CDC has pretty good statistics. I want to say it's fifty thousand deaths per week in America because of respiratory illnesses, whether it's COPD, whether it's influenza, whether it's some other kind of virus, uh, whether it's pneumonia. When people get old and frail, that's one of the ways in which they end up succumbing is they get a respiratory virus and they and they die from it. And so what he did is he tracked that amount of, of deaths and it's pretty well been the same um, all the way through. He said, except for this last year, we're led to believe that all of those respiratory deaths were caused by one single virus and it was a coronavirus. It just, it doesn't make any sense, right? right? Exactly. And so that that I think is, is part of the issue is we wanna see how many people have died of respiratory distress in 2021 versus 2019 versus right. 2017 versus exactly. 2015? Let's see how unusual this was. Or was it just that the same vulnerable people who would have died from a normal respiratory virus were also dying from this one? So that's one thing that we need to, to, uh, to examine. The other thing is, why are we continue to ac accumulate the number of deaths like we don't do that with influenza. Influenza has a season. Every year we reset the data and then we count and we reset them again. We're, by my count, I think that we're entering our third year of COVID statistics. And yet we continue to accumulate the number of deaths. And so as you accumulate the number of deaths, you don't really have any perspective about how one year is relative to the prior year, relative to the prior year. We don't know whether influenza has come back and is causing people to die. I mean, let's face it, influenza is far more dangerous to people under the age of 20. I kind of want to know if, uh, young kids are getting influenza again and are succumbing to it. That's important information to have. So we have to put 
uh, coronavirus into the context of all of the other respiratory viruses and start reporting it the same way. Third thing we have to do is we have to figure out how to account for deaths of those in long-term care. This is why we don't have apples to apples comparisons because any of the hospitalization and death statistics that we had were, were based on people who showed up in hospital and died in hospital. We never used to keep track of anyone who died of influenza in the nursing home. We just extrapolate that based on, based on some of the data that we're seeing. So you can't have that level of imbalance, especially since somewhere in the order of 70% of the deaths happened in long-term care facilities. Does that always happen? Do we always have 70% of the deaths happening in any influenza year happening in, in long-term care facilities? We don't have the data to be able to know that. And we also do need to do some analysis of what went so wrong in the worst jurisdictions, Quebec and Ontario had the most deaths in long-term care. So does that mean that we need to have better ongoing practices in long-term care homes? Do we always need to do some kind of testing when people enter? Do we always need to have guests wearing masks and uh, and gloves? Do we always need to have it or, or when we have these surges? Do we need to have better um, HEPA filters or UVC rays so that we can clear out the microbes? Um, do we need to have better therapeutics so that if somebody does get an infection that we can give them some kind of therapeutics so their bodies can fight back? Do we need to change the structure of our long-term care facilities? I think one of the problems in Ontario was that there were four people to a room. So if you get one with COVID, it's going to go through like wildfire. Do we need to change our staffing model as part of the problem that staff were getting sick and taking it from room to room or from, from facility to facility is part of the problem in Quebec that they got so panicked about the potential of not having hospital beds that they released COVID positive patients into the nursing homes, which then infected the nursing homes. So that to me is a real piece that we need to unbundle. Cause I think that part of what has occurred is that there's been a lot of bungling on the yeah. part of our health officials, yeah. our long-term care providers, our, uh, our public health officials, and they've put it back on us because they have failed to protect our most vulnerable and our seniors. They've said, oh, well, it's your fault because you went to the gym, or it's your fault because you went out for a restaurant meal, or it's your fault because you didn't get vaccinated. And that's, uh, and that's part of what I think has happened is that they've, because of, of this, these problems that I just articulated, that we're not having an honest discussion about how to solve those problems, they're deflecting and making it yep. seem like it's a, it's a collective responsibility. We're not gonna solve this for the future. We're not gonna be able to protect our most vulnerable if we're trying to pretend that 106 year olds with five pre-existing conditions are picking up COVID because they've gone to the gym for a workout. Like right. there's, that's a major disconnect. And, we, and we've gotta make sure that, that people understand that that's just not what's ha how it's happening. Yeah, there, we can't be whitewashing everything. Like I would see stats come out. What you just said, that was well said. Because I saw, I would see stats come out, graphs, and they would say something and you'd go, oh my God, yeah. And then somebody else would take that same graph and bring in all these other issues. And you kind of go, wow, now that makes complete sense. And it reminds me of the old proverb that the first guy always sounds right mm. until the second person weighs in. Yeah. Uh, with a different view. And so real wisdom to get us through it. I mean, if we could, if I could give one quick message to Canadians, I would be saying, hey, uh, we need to disagree. There's nothing wrong with disagreeing and looking and don't let things get whitewashed and just put aside. Let's, let, let's allow our brightest minds in every sector to be allowed to weigh in where they're not being taken out. 
There's a, there's a personality type. I don't know if you've ever done any of those personality tests. One of the ones that I did when I was at a sales organization, it talked about social styles and there's a social, there's a, a certain type of person who is an analytical style, like all your doctors and researchers and scientists. And one of the things that they hate most in the world is being wrong. It, it is, it causes physical distress for them to be told that they're wrong, which is why they take a lot of time. They want to be 100% right before they make a decision. But those are the folks who've been, uh, who've been uh, leading this, this discussion all the way through. There's other types like me, like I'm, I'm prepared to go out on a limb to make a decision, even if it might be wrong, because there's virtually nothing in life that can't be corrected. Sometimes not making a decision can be the wrong decision. So I would rather make a decision, have somebody say, whoopsie, you got that one wrong, let's tweak it a little bit. It's a total different personality type. And so that's something that we have to be very, very uh, mindful of, is that there are people, as we go through this navel gazing exercise uh, and this analytical exercise to find out what went wrong, who are going to be very distressed by it. And we have to make sure that people understand that getting to the truth is more important than someone's hurt feelings. And so if we can find a way to balance that, I think we'll be able to move forward, but we can't bury information because it's, it's just too crucial. We just have to make sure that people have confidence in all of our systems, that we have to have confidence that next time there is a public health crisis, we can trust what our chief medical officers are telling us. We can trust what our politicians are telling us. We know that there's everybody is doing their best effort to try to keep people who are most vulnerable safe and that the media is reporting on it appropriately. And I, if I was to tell you if a new variant came out tomorrow, all of those institutions, no one would trust them at the moment because they haven't gone through that exercise of identifying and self-identifying what they did wrong so that we have confidence that they corrected it. People feel powerless. You know, it depends on who, what group you speak with. Everyone's not the same, but there is such a group that feel well, there's nothing we can do. This is just going to happen again. What should citizens be engaged in? There's there's a ton of freedom groups that have popped up all over. I know for sure all over the the province of Alberta. I'm assuming it must be happening in other places as well. And it's been so fascinating to see like they're. They're using Telegram and Signal uh, to, to contact each other, choosing a meetup spot. It's almost like finding a speakeasy and going and quietly meeting together. And they've been doing this for months. And so, so part of it is, is going to be the empowerment of those kind of groups that, that citizens really do have the ability to send a message and change the direction of their government. That I think is an appropriate way to do it. I think sadly the Freedom Convoy went too far when they blocked our border crossings. Like they should have known in Alberta that we had a law against blocking critical infrastructure. And so when you when you go too far, and the Ambassador Bridge was probably the, the best example, you, you can't just shut off $400 million of cross-border traffic a day and not invite some kind of response. So to, so to me, the freedom groups are doing amazing work. They have to figure out where the lines are, but I hope they don't lose that activism coming yeah. out every week, having people 10,000 strong or more marching down the street, making sure that, uh, that it's recorded on social media, getting the message out there. I, I think, I think that at, at least in the alternative media, getting that message out is important and learning the lesson that there are strength in numbers. And if you keep organized and keep connected that when it matters, there can be collective action that is extraordinarily powerful. You know, we sing in our national anthem, we stand on guard for thee. And I think most of us have thought in the generations past about outside people trying to take our Canada. 
but I think we need to stand for freedom when it comes to any ideology, anything that begins to creep in. And this, there's been a massive wake-up call, and uh, I hope that people will continue, like you said. You, you think the Ukraine and Russia situation right now, they're trying to deflect and get all attention over onto that and off of this? Or what do you think about the, the Ukraine-Russia Well, it, it could be the combination of the, the trucker convoy and a real war that has snapped everybody out of it. I mean, I'm not even really seeing much coverage these days about COVID, although I'm, I'm sure they keep on doing it. It's It would seem really frivolous now with the hardship that Ukrainians are going through for us to try to pretend that we can have like we can't talk out of both sides of our mouth. When you have Christian Freeland saying this is a, a epic battle between freedom and tyranny, why isn't she looking in the mirror and realizing her own people by her own decisions are not allowed to leave the country? Why isn't she looking at her own actions saying that the kind of measures they're now imposing on Russia, not allowing people to do business with them, transact through the banks. She just did that on her own people a week ago. The, the level of disconnect between the leaders is, is pretty outrageous to me. And so if, if these two incidents together have shown us, number one, Freedom Convoy said, enough is enough. Here's the line. Number two, our federal leaders need to be focused on real pressing international crises where people's homes are taken from them, where they're fleeing as refugees. That's where I want my federal politicians focusing their effort, not on micromanaging whether a trucker who works almost his entire day alone has a vaccine or not. And so if this these two incidents together can help our politicians prioritize about what a real emergency is, what a real and legitimate use of a War Measures Act is, then, then I, think, I, I think that that will be a, a good lesson for all of them. There's a real danger though, that when we flip slip back into not having real crises like that, that they'll just they'll go back to the same kind of bad behavior. So there's a period of time here, I think, where the, the freedom organizers need to figure out how to lock in the freedoms yeah. that we have gained, do the kind of things you're talking about, the full analysis to make sure this doesn't happen again, and stay um, stay committed because um, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. We know that there are forces on the side that want to keep on pushing for lockdowns. So there's going to have to, for a time anyway, be a force that pushes back against it. I've seen a lot of data out there. Well, not a lot, but I've seen data out there of the cost of the lockdowns and in all the different streams you talked about and others, like how many more deaths because, because. And I think that all needs to be tabulated. I think someone needs to do that. Bring it all together and begin, so that people can see the cost. It wasn't just, well, you know, it wasn't a big deal. We got vaccinated and not a big deal. No, there has to be a look at what it costs Canadians, families, children, people dying alone, uh, people's businesses gone, careers gone, um, people who've trained for 14, 15 years in university to be a specialist and then gone. Uh, all of this needs to be brought back up so that all these people who stood for integrity and honor um, you know, can, be, can somehow get their lives back. And we need to take a new look at leadership. Like there used to be a day in my grandpa's day uh, where to be a leader, it was integrous. It was integrity. It was honor. You, you were a leader because you were looking after people to your own hurt. And so some of these things I, I think are crucial. And I think there's been enough pain and heartache that, that this will keep going. And, but you know what? I would love to, my time went by so fast, but I would love to talk again because there's some, a lot of things we touched on that could, could bear taking a deep dive and Definitely. flesh it out. People need Thank to hear you. it.
Thank you so much for the conversation. And I, I imagine that there'll be social scientists crunching the numbers on that for years to come. This is the point. I mean, we've got insurance companies that publicly report their data on death yeah. benefits and disability benefits. We've got publicly reported data on all of the health files. We've got economic statistics. Eventually, we'll have enough data to be able to do that kind of analysis. And you're you're completely right. There needs to be a reckoning and there needs to be a tabulation so that the, the next leaders, one more adjective I'd describe as courageous, courage, yes. so that the next leaders have the, have the courage not to just go along with the crowd, that they've got the courage to stand up for freedom, knowing that the consequences of these kind of harsh measures will have much more severe long-term consequences. Yeah, I like that. My dad always said to me that doing the right thing and being courageous might not make you popular with other people, but in your family, your marriage, your kids, your grandkids, and everything else, it's a powerful thing for the generations of your family ahead of you. And anyway, thank you, Danielle. This has been a great time of talking, and we'll do it again. You bet. My pleasure. Return to Reason is supported by our fans. We are not handcuffed by advertisers or shareholders. The need for media with integrity is more important than ever. Consider becoming a partner and fueling the unheard truth by visiting returntoreason.tv.